Welcome to The Wild Photographer with Court Whalen. So today we're going to be talking about five of my favorite tips for instantly elevating your photography game. Focus, composition, light, white balance, and uh, what I view as very important but a little bit less technical, the storytelling aspect of things. So let's begin with focus. Um, focus is obviously a big part of photography. You want your images to be crisp, tack sharp, as we sometimes call it. Where do you focus and how do you do it? Well, let's break it down into a few different components. Of course, you have your manual focus and your autofocus. Uh, I highly recommend keeping your camera on autofocus the vast, vast, vast majority of the time. Uh, but then it breaks down a little bit further into that category. If you look in your camera's menu or your autofocus menu, you often see uh, five, six, maybe even seven different categories of how the camera autofocuses for you. And this is really broken down into where and how it chooses the focus point. Um, you'll notice that there are usually in your camera's menu under autofocus, a bunch of little boxes kind of strewed about, uh, the, the screen in different areas. Um, there, there are some different schools of thought here. So I personally, I'll tell you what I do first. I personally put center pinpoint autofocus on so that that center focus is the only thing that it focuses on the cam i don't allow the camera to choose where it's focusing it's only that middle point um the reason i like this so much is because it's a very small focal area and frankly i don't want the camera to make too many choices for me now frankly i have a big fancy camera like you may or others that you know may um but i don't want the camera to cho choose too many things for me otherwise i'm well, on, on a, a psychological level, I'm less involved in the photography, in the taking of the photo, but really what it boils down to is I think the camera does, just doesn't get it right all the time. It gets it right uh, in general, maybe about 70% of the time. I really want to up that number to close to 100%. So again, that middle focus, what I do is if I'm photographing a lion or an elephant or an orangutan, you, know, you name it, I know for a fact 100% of my time that middle focus area is what the camera is going to focus on. Uh, I put my subject or my foreground in that middle area. I hold the shutter down halfway. Uh, that locks in the focus. I do not let up my finger and then I recompose the shot, okay? So it's probably worth mentioning that again. Uh, the trick to composing with that center pointed autofocus is that you lock the focus down by pressing your shutter about half of the way. You're not pressing it the whole way so it actually takes the shot, but just halfway press it. What that does on 99% of cameras is it locks in the focus. That way you can move around, that focus point can move around as you're pointing in camera your camera in different directions. Uh, and then when you're ready to take the shot, after you compose it, uh, then you snap it, you push that shutter all the way down, and voila, there you go. Now, I mentioned before that there are some other different types of autofocus settings, and they are great, they have their purposes. Um, I, I personally don't use them. I think really what I do most is if I'm handing my camera off to someone to take a photo of myself or my family or you know my group or whatever, I might set it on one of those autofocus settings just so the person that may not routinely use my camera or any camera at all, uh, they can just depress the shutter button, the camera thinks for them, 
Uh, usually for a group photo or a person photo, it, the autofocus is intelligent enough. Um, the biggest thing is that when I'm out in the field, I'm photographing small birds, I'm photographing tigers, where I might just have this one chance all trip to get the perfect shot. I do not want the camera to be given any sort of leeway. I don't want the camera to decide for me in these critical, critical moments. Again, if I'm passing my camera off, having someone take a, a shot of me in front of a waterfall or something, and I'm not gonna you know, be uh, distraught if it didn't turn out perfectly, yeah, I'll, I'll put it on a different autofocus setting for that purpose only. So now that you understand how to get your autofocus settings to work for you, where do you actually focus? Okay, so great, you got this little dot in the middle of your camera. What do you do with it now that you have that tool? Well, I'm gonna give you one piece of advice that might be a game changer if you've never heard of this or have never employed this tactic before. Uh, and this goes for any sort of photography, wildlife, people, you name it. Focus on the eyes, plain and simple. Where do you focus? You have to focus somewhere. Uh, you have a big male gorilla coming towards you. You have a lion posing underneath uh, an acacia tree on the Serengeti. Um, where do you focus? You focus on the eyes, plain and simple. Now, uh, you'll probably hear this throughout all my talks, all my podcasts, is that rules are always meant to be broken. That's a fact. Rules are meant to be broken. Uh, I never expect you to, to trust what I'm saying. Don't even trust yourself to do the same thing over and over again. Always but the, the big thing is that if you're going to break the rules, understand that it is a rule that you're breaking and, you know, basically justify to yourself why are you breaking this rule. Now, if we're talking about macro photography of flowers or something, that's a whole different ballgame. But, of course, when we're talking here about wildlife photography, people photography, um, the eyes are what the viewer connects with. If you don't have the eyes sharp, it's going to stand out and it's going to look noticeable. It's going to look bad. Um, it's fine if the nose is in focus and the ears are in focus and the forehead's in focus. That's all well and good. Um, but the eyes not only give you a good point to lock onto, there's good contrast usually around the eyes. So autofocus tends to work quite well there. But first and foremost, if the eyes are not in focus, you've got a problem. So anything else that becomes in focus is more having to do with camera settings and technique, but you have to have the eyes in focus to get a good shot. I, I implore you to make that one of your golden rules for wildlife and people and just general photography uh, around the world. So if we employ that tactic with what I just told you about that shutter halfway down recomposed sort of thing, what are you gonna do? Well, you're in front of a, a giraffe or a zebra or an orangutan or whatever you're in front of. Um, you're looking at the animal. Uh, it's probably looking somewhat at you or it's looking off to the side. Uh, you want to get that middle autofocus point pointed on the face, hone in right on the eyes, look through your viewfinder or magnify it if you need to. Um, focus, shutter halfway down, and then recompose the shot, plain and simple. So we're moving on here. And remember, this is the five golden rules, uh, kind of like a wildlife photography 101. So if you would like to learn more about things like focus, uh, like composition, what I'm going to talk about next, we will have additional podcasts in the future that really focus, <laughs> no pun intended, on those subjects. Uh, but without further ado, you know, we started to, to get into the topic of composition. We said, uh, you know, hold the shutter down halfway, recompose the shot. Well, how do you recompose the shot? What do you do to make your photos really stand out? Um, another big tip, if you've never heard of this or employed this tactic before, the rule of thirds. Even if you do use this, it's something that I think maybe a few tips and tricks here will really set apart your photography. I would hope instantly elevate your game. So rule of thirds, what is it? You imagine essentially a tic-tac-toe board across your viewfinder or across your screen. 
um, and you have essentially two vertical lines and two horizontal lines, okay? So nine different squares, tic-tac-toe board. Um, within that tic-tac-toe board, there are four intersecting points, right? So two lines vertical, two lines horizontal. They intersect at four different points. All of this is important for understanding what rule of thirds is, uh, how to use it, and why. So basically, there is a lot of artistic license, a lot of artistic leeway in how you use the rule of thirds. There is no perfect, you must do this each and every time. It's not like you must always put the animal's head in the, in the leftmost third and the animal's body in the, the far two rights of the, the, the breakdown. Um, really what you're trying to do, and this is basic, but you have to understand that this is where the artistic license comes in, uh, you have to put some sort of significance on the thirds and on those intersecting lines. So a great example is if you have, uh, let's say a mountainscape or some sort of landscape um, where you have a meadow, mountains, and the sky, okay? What you wanna do, classic example, is you wanna put each of those segments into one third from top to bottom, going horizontally from top to bottom, uh, and you want to organize your photo that way. In other words, what you don't want to do is the rule of twos. <laughs> it's not a rule because it doesn't really work very well. You don't want to put that mountain or that that sunset over the beach or whatever you're photographing. You don't want to put it smack dab in the middle of your shot. You want to create a little bit of asymmetry there, and there's a lot of mathematics that goes behind all this, and we can talk about that in a future episode, but the idea is that you're breaking it down into thirds. The eye works better the brain works better by breaking it down into thirds. And we're talking about the viewer, of course. Um, you are the viewer when you're viewing your own photographs. You have other people as viewers when they are viewing your photographs in an exhibition, online, on social media. What you're trying to do is please the viewer. That might be yourself, that might be someone else. But the viewer inherently likes photographs, likes imagery better when it's broken down into those thirds. Now it's thirds not just top to bottom or bottom to top, whatever you wanna say, it's also left to right. So you have, again, those nine squares um, you might find that in your mountainscape, um, if you're going you know, bottom to top with a meadow, a beautiful mountain, and then a nice blue sky, uh, that on the left side of the mountain, there's a big tree. Uh, and you break that down, and so that, that tree is just in those left three most squares, the entire left third of the scene, if you're looking at a left to right or right to left scenario. So again, there's no perfect way to do it. You don't always want to put something you know, on this square or in this square or facing this square, but you might want to start thinking about your photography, particularly composition, with some sort of significance to breaking your scene down in thirds. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that you have these four intersecting points. This is where things get quite interesting, okay? Uh, what you also want to do with those, again, I'm going to be very ambiguous, but that's the point because you are it, it's your, your job to really take this and run with this with your own photography. You want to put some sort of significance on those intersecting points. Now, I find this is a little bit tougher to do with generic landscape scenes, so I don't really take those four points to heart unless I'm photographing specific subjects, like a specific rock, specific tree, a specific canyon, uh, one mountain amidst a, a sea of sand dunes or you know what have you, but particularly it's when I'm photographing wildlife, okay? So what happens with those intersecting points, uh, the classic example is you never want to put your animal, your subject, smack dab in the middle of your shot. You know, So imagine again that tic-tac-toe board. You don't want to put your subject in that middle square and have nothing else going on. It tends to be very boring for the viewer. It doesn't create enough tension and drama in the scene. 
What you really want to do is you want to put your subject slightly off-center. And to the left or to the right, uh, it uh, is up to you. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's really up to you as to which direction you want to go. There are some more advanced techniques um, that we can talk about in terms of, you know, which direction is the animal facing or the person facing. Generally, you want to put that that gaze, that view into the open space. So in other words, if you have a person um, looking to the left of your screen, you want to put the person on the right part of those intersecting points. So they're looking into more of the open space of the photo. There just tends to be a bit of stress when the person's looking uh, into the short side of the frame or looking off frame. Uh, again, it's just it has to do with laws of aesthetics we'll talk about in a future episode. But in general, those intersecting points are points of significance. Somehow put your subject, put something in those points to make it really, really stand out. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is light. Uh, light is almost a cliche with photography. You know, you hear a lot of photo instructors say, oh, it's all about light. Light is the key. Photography is light. Um, I desperately don't want to be that cliche person, yet it is entirely true. And I'll, I'll explain in a way that I often do to my uh, photography guests on photo tours. Um, basically, if you were to imagine the most beautiful scene of the Grand Canyon, you know, you're looking down, there's just miles and miles of colors and layers of rock and oranges and yellows and even some green foliage mixed in. It's just beautiful, spectacular, like truly a work of wonder. Um, but imagine you're looking at this in the middle of the night. Uh, there are no stars, there's no moon, there's no sun. It's just sheer darkness. What do you see? Not a lot. That's That's the whole thing is that... It's kind of cliche to think that photography is all about capturing light. And, oh, is the light bouncing off this? Like, don't think too much about it. The whole trick is that if you don't have light, you're not seeing anything. So at very least, you're photographing what the light allows you to see. So then when you take one step further and start thinking about the different times of days, the different quality of lights, the saturation of light, the angle of light, the sharpness of light, the evenness of light, uh, contrast, so on and so forth, um, you start to realize that you, you can really elevate your game a lot when you start thinking about light, uh, looking at photography as not just the beautiful scene, the beautiful animal before you, um, but really about how the light is portraying it. So you can just have a very generic scene of, you know, high noon at that Grand Canyon or, uh, you know, high noon photographing bison in Yellowstone National Park. Um, yeah, it's very unremarkable, very unexceptional light. When you want to start leveling up your game as a way to elevate your photography, start thinking about, well, you know, what would be interesting light? And I can tell you the easy, the easy fix there, um, the thing that happens twice every day, guaranteed, no matter what happens, is dawn and dusk, early and late times. Now, I'm not saying you need to be there for sunrise. That often necessitates and requires its own kind of awkward level of logistics of, you know, getting ready and getting out and finding your spot in the dark. But more, just think about the early and late times of day. This happens every single day, like clockwork. It is clockwork. Uh, getting out and photographing wildlife in the earlier morning hours and the later evening hours will instantly give you better light. So part of the training and instruction here, training yourself, is not necessarily just to get up early or to stay out late, but it's to start to look at light and see light differently. So there are a few key things that I break light down into, and we'll go over them here. We're looking at saturation, evenness, and angle. 
Okay, so saturation is one that uh, is a luxury. It doesn't always happen. That's why we have saturation sliders on editing tools and whatnot. But sometimes you'll notice, uh, oftentimes around certain times of day or even certain weather events like storms and whatnot, um, as that light is filtered through clouds, you'll notice that there's a different light coming through. And this doesn't have to just be at sunset and sunrise, which are characteristic times for that nice yellow or orange or red light. But sometimes when big storms come through, you might see that it's filtering light to be a little bit more blue or a little bit more yellow. Um, we call that a cooling or a warming effect. Um, these are really, really great times because what they do is they add more saturation to your scene without you having to do anything. The light is saturating your scene for you. Uh, the other big one is going to be evenness. Uh, we often talk about photographing early and late because of that beautiful color of light, but it's also having to do with the evenness of light. You don't get as harsh contrast and shadows. Um, I used an example earlier about photographing at high noon, you know, at midday, that sun is more or less overhead. What do you get? Bright sun, cloudless sky. You get really bright light and br really harsh shadows. You get bright brights and dark darks. Um, that can be good. Again, all rules are meant to be broken. There are times where that's beautiful and extremely uh, satisfactory to your scene, something you really, really want, that you're chasing after. But I would say more often than not, like 80 to 90% of the time, you'd prefer not to have that. With wildlife photography, when you have those harsh shadows, you're going to get really amateur looking photos. What you want is even light. Um, so that your camera can do the work to light it. You don't necessarily need a lot of light, you just need even light. So that's why that dawn and dusk time of day is really, really fantastic because even though there's less light and you might have to stop down your aperture, you might have to increase your ISO, you don't get those harsh shadows that make wildlife photos look like you were just taking a photo in your backyard with your disposable Kodak camera. The angle of light is really important too. We like our low angle sun at dawn and dusk, we like our angular light coming through clouds filtered by big thunderheads. Um, but sometimes when you're down in canyons, when you're up on mountaintops, when you're in valleys, when you're along river corridors, and you're photographing wildlife, you might see that the sun is coming in at a different angle. It might be bouncing along rocks, might be reflecting. Um, definitely chase after those times and those opportunities. Those are some of my favorite ways to get interesting light. Again, everybody can go out at high noon, midday, and photograph something, but if you put the extra effort uh, to not only be out there at different times of days, but also train your eyes to see light a little bit differently, you're going to notice that scenes before you get really, really dramatic, and most importantly, really, really unique as you get to photograph light at different angles, different evenness, different saturations. So this is a good segue into our next topic, going from light into now white balance. White balance, uh, this is an often overlooked part of cameras and part of photography. People usually just set their white balance on auto, you know, AWB is usually what shows up in your camera and they set it and they forget it and they say, well, I can change it in Photoshop or in whatever photo editing program you have. That's all well and good, but I'll tell you what, it turns out so much better if you can custom set your white balance for the day, for the activity, for the event that you're actually shooting. So let's step back a quick second. White balance is basically the way your camera perceives pure white. If you've ever noticed that when you photograph indoors, there's oftentimes this really weird dominant blue or yellow hue to everything, whereas maybe you're photographing something outdoors and it looks very, very, well, similarly, either yellow or blue. That's kind of the spectrum we're talking about. Uh, what happens is the light that is shining on your scene is entirely governed by 
one particular light source. Outside, guess what it is? It's the sun. It's a dominant light source. It's very predictable. However, we have been able to man-make light for our indoor pursuits, um, and that's where we get all sorts of different weird, what we call color temperatures, things like incandescent bulbs, tungsten lights, fluorescent lights. Uh, it actually yields a pretty different look on what pure white is. You'll notice that a pure white subject, let's, let's just use like a, a vase, a flower vase, a pure white flower vase, if it's illuminated by yellow light, it's going to take a yellow hue to it. If it's illuminated by more of like a, a fluorescent blue kind of in, uh, fluorescent light, it's going to take a bit more of a cooler blue effect to it. So what your camera's trying to do is digitally buffer all this kind of color temperature interference. So it gets a nice even light each and every time. Um, our eyes adjust pretty well. And when we're indoors and we're seeing a yellow light above our kitchen, our eyes just gradually get to know that indoor light looks like this. However, camera as a digital instrument, digital tool, it tends to perceive it a bit harsher. So as a result, we have this white balance setting that calibrates pure white. So if you've never given too much thought to white balance, again, this is a really quick way to elevate, instantly elevate your game with wildlife photography. Um, so with wildlife photography, you know, nine times out of 10, we're outside. If you have wildlife in your home, you probably have a different problem and aren't listening to this podcast. But when you're outside photographing wildlife, you're almost always going to be under sunlight. However, just what we were talking about in the previous section, sunlight is not always the exact same, what we would call color temperature. That's not always the exact same quality. Um, a big yellow sun in the sky with no clouds around it is going to emit a different color temperature than sun behind thunderhead clouds, big blue, purple thunderhead clouds. That light is going to be filtered through the clouds, and the light that reaches you and your subject, and ultimately your camera, is going to take on a different hue. The whole thing is on one big spectrum. This is, this is the easy part. It's on one big spectrum from a blue to a yellow. Okay, so we talk about pretty much just two different colors here, blue to yellow. You may remember back in film days or filter days, now that we don't really use filters much anymore, you would often have a kit of filters in your bag that would be different levels of coolness and warmness filters. This is pretty much what it's trying to do. Now we have auto white balance, but back in the day, you'd have to balance your white, your white color on your lens itself through warming and cooling filters. So the reason I tell you all this is that it's the same terminology today. So when we take a photo that has a little bit more of a blue tinge to it, we call that a cool effect or a cool look. A cooling filter has been applied digitally through the white balance. Um, similarly, if you're outside and the sun is shining and it's got that yellow hue to it, it's gonna be a very warm look, a very warming effect, a warming filter. It's a warm look to your photo and that's the opposite end of the spectrum. So as you go from blue to yellow, you kind of have this balance that's going on there depending on what sort of light is going on. And rather than me tell you everything here about it, I would say there's one quick way you can balance this all equally in your brain. One quick way you can proceed is if you like photos that have a little bit more of a cool look to them. Um, when I'm photographing in the Arctic, for instance, I like a cooler looking photo. It's appropriate. We're supposed to be cold. We're supposed to, the scene's supposed to look cool. If I'm photographing polar bears or Arctic foxes, I, I don't want it to be look, I don't want it to look like I'm in the Sahara desert with this sort of yellow tinged everything. So as a result, I will put my camera on daylight. Okay, the daylight setting. Go in your camera's menu, look for that little sunburst in your white balance, and that instantly injects more blue into the photo. Um, conversely, if I'm somewhere tropical, maybe Borneo or Madagascar, or even in the canyons areas of the American Southwest, 
I personally like my photos to have more of a warm look to them. I think it, the saturation of that yellow really brings out the things like the reds and the oranges. In the tropics, it really brings out that warm tropical feel. So I will put my camera on cloudy. Okay, so cloudy, find that little cloud in your camera menu, and that's what I set it on. Those, that's it. Those are the two things that I use. There are about eight others ranging from flash to fluorescent bulbs to shady to, you know, indoors. That's all well and good, but I really try to just think very simply here and put it a, more of like a polar kind of spectrum. I either want more blue or I want more yellow, period. So I know what you're going to say next. If I take all this time to go through and actually set my white balance, why am I not being more precise? Well, the truth is, is you can make these fine-tuned adjustments, these micro adjustments, actually even macro adjustments on your computer fairly easily, especially if you're shooting in RAW. Um, however, that all being said, the, the big trick, the big difference I've found over the years is that when you're on the computer and let's just say you're shooting an auto white balance and the camera is just getting it, you know, wrong all over the place. It's too blue on this shot, too yellow on this shot. It's just guessing, you know, it's thinking what it should do. Um, it's usually not right. Um, if I'm making a big adjustment from a scene that has, you know, auto white balance put a lot of cooling effect, a lot of blue into the photo, and I say, ah, you know, this, I'm in the middle of the, the Grand Canyon. It's, it was really warm that day. The sun was beaming down. This was definitely a warmer kind of feel. I want to I wanna exude that in my photo. I will find that that switch going from a cool blue effect of, you know, what would be like a daylight kind of setting to my cloudy setting on the computer changes the photo so dramatically that I, I look at it and say, oh, no, I'm, I am just over-editing this photo. This is not how it was. Ooh, that's, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. I'm, I'm not a purist, but I also don't want to misrepresent the photo as I saw it. Like, what I'm really trying to do with all post-processing, we can get to this in a different episode, but what I'm really trying to get to do with processing, post-processing, is to create the scene that I saw with my eyes. So anyway, long story short, the thing is, is if you change your settings on site as you're taking that photo, and that's the first representation of that scene that you see on the computer when the, when the photo pops up, and you don't need to change it, you're gonna be a lot happier with your photo, and you won't get that shock value from changing colors so dramatically, because make no mistake, going from you know a daylight setting to a cloudy setting will change your photography significantly. My goal here is to get you to be aware it's a thing, start experimenting with it, and it will change your photography, but hopefully for the dramatically better. The last thing I'll say on white balance is basically my strategy, what I do. So I mentioned earlier that when I'm in the Arctic, I like to be cooler. I like to put that daylight filter or that daylight white balance on, which injects more blue into the scene. Um, when I'm in tropics, I like the yellow, but the truth is, is that it's quite imbalanced. I, I really only put that blue effect, that daylight filter, on when I'm, frankly, in the Arctic. And almost everything else gets that cloudy effect, gets that yellow injection. And that's simply because it's my preference. I, I like my photos to be a little bit more vibrant. I think that adds a level of saturation without having to physically saturate or oversaturate the shot. Um, I like that effect for my photography. Now, I also do a lot of travels in the tropics where I like that warmth and that it's very natural feeling and look. But just, just to be frank, that's what I do. About 90% of the time, I have my camera's white balance set on cloudy. Finally, we're up to the last segment, the last of my top five tips for instantly elevating your wildlife photography, and that is storytelling. Um, you know, this is a 
this is a lost art in photography, I feel. We have gotten to the point where lenses and cameras are so good, we can zoom in so far, we can do so much with them, that we often have this almost obsession, this addiction with just getting these big, big photos. Um, and when I say a big photo, I mean like a full face shot of a polar bear or like, you know, just the eyes of an elephant, the full face of a wild dog in Botswana. I love those photos. Don't get me wrong. If I'm in front of any of those things, I will be getting those shots 100%. But the problem is, is that we often obsess over those things so much, we forget about the bigger picture, the the context, if you will. Um, you know, it's easy to get these telephoto lenses and zoom in so close that we don't take shots, wildlife shots with wide-angle lenses or ultra-wides or even medium telephotos like a 70 to 200. We generally go for the the bigger firepower as wildlife photographers. And I'll, I'll be honest, I am absolutely guilty of that too. But I have personally gotten better and better over the years of telling myself, being that little voice in my head, reminding myself that, hey, don't forget to tell the story. Put some context around this photo, this scene, what we're doing. Um, oftentimes, if, if you're doing international wildlife photography stuff like, like I am, it takes a lot of logistics and a lot of travel and a lot of complexity to get to where we are. Um, if you're not photographing the vehicles and the means of travel and all the various transportation elements, the safari vehicle, the Makoro that you're pulling through the Okavango Delta in, um, I think you're missing a big part of it. Similarly, if you are, say, in India and you are on a tiger photo safari, you you know that most of your time is tracking tigers or sitting waiting for a tiger. You heard the alarm calls. You heard the bellow. You are waiting for that tiger to emerge. Um, if you don't document that experience of the waiting, the search, the anticipation, the maybe the anxiety, I feel like you're missing out on a big part of your memory and your ability to to think fondly and recollect on the adventure later on. So what do I mean by all that? Well, in short, it's taking photos atypically. Uh, take the photo that is not as obvious, not as desirable in the moment, sort through it later. And this sounds weird to say, but say you're on a, a voyage down to Antarctica, okay? You're on a wildlife photo safari down to Antarctica. The voyage is long. It's, it's intense. The Drake passage is a crossing nobody will ever forget. Um, you know, your time is often spent sitting looking out the window with water droplets, ocean spray beating up that you really can't see through, or it's holding onto handrails as you go downstairs. Um, this is not photos of wildlife, but it's photos of your experience and its context. If you just showcase that one photo of an emperor penguin or a king penguin um, or one of the many seal species, and that's your highlight, that's everything, without showing how you got there, I feel like you're, frankly, doing your own journey, your own courageousness, your own intrepidness a bit of a disservice. So the point is, take photos of those weird things that are not overly obvious to the wildlife photographer, the landscape photographer, but think about travel, think of the journey, think about the context, take that photo of the beaded water up against the window and the handrail you walk down 10 times a day, those things will actually be much more memorable than you give them credit for in the moment. So think about the way you got in front of that animal. Uh, think about the door hinge. Think about the front windshield of the Jeep that's bent down. Um, all these little eccentricities, I think, really help develop a better portfolio of your adventures with wildlife photography. 
Then there's the other part of actually photographing the wildlife itself. So again, our addiction, our our general obsession is to zoom in and get that ultra crisp, tack sharp, every single hair is in focus, you know, of the the male silverback gorilla. And we forget about the context. We forget about forget about the fact that we are on a, a, a wildly sloping hillside with vines and dense canopy and trees everywhere, um, and fellow travelers around us. Even um, I implore you, you know, don't leave the ultra wide angle lens behind or the wide angle lens behind. You know, take that shot uh, as you see it with your eyes. Um, oftentimes, when you take photos and you look in the back of your camera. You know, you, you say, okay, well, this is good. I could get even closer. I could get even closer. I could get even closer. Or, you know, I, why would I want to get any further away or zoom any farther back because the animal's already kind of small in the scene? Remember, you're looking at it in a one-inch by one-inch screen on the back of your camera, at most a two-inch by two-inch screen on the good new cameras. Um, you're not getting the represent, representation. You know, you will likely be looking at this on the computer later. This is probably going to be like a 27-inch monitor. You might be blowing it up to a 24 by 36 print. Um, so, you know, it's not that you don't want to get those close-up shots or those those classic shots that you see on the cover of guidebooks and magazines and National Geographics, but don't forget to take a few shots of the entire scene for the storytelling element. The other thing that people don't immediately think of when they're on their wildlife photo expeditions is photographing some of the clunkier things. Um, I mentioned, you know, the, the vehicles and whatnot. Um, I mean the vehicles and the wildlife and the people, you know, getting it all together. Um, oftentimes when I'm leading a wildlife safari in Africa, I, I will pull around to one of the wildlife sightings, you know, big pride of lions or a, a lone cheetah, and we've got it all to ourselves. It's fantastic. People are clicking away. And then another vehicle pulls up maybe in the distance, and I can hear the collective moan, the sigh, the, the, the disgust of my guests behind me because they're like, oh, this perfect shot is now ruined by this vehicle over there. And, you know, this is not just me making lemonade. I have to be honest, I love shots like that. I mean, we have already gotten our shot of the cheetah, you know, full frame, get, you know, full, full face in the, the frame of the camera. But... Remember the context, if you can get that vehicle and that cheetah together, what an awesome storytelling element. It really paints the picture for the viewers of your photographs, wherever you post them or publish them, whether it's social media, whether it's your own website, whether you're in the magazines or stock photos, um, you know, getting that vehicle and the wildlife really puts the viewer in your shoes. They see that vehicle, they see how close it is. And it really puts it all into context. Storytelling is context and vice versa. And it's not just vehicles. Uh, it also goes for just people, pedestrians, hikers, walkers. Uh, sometimes people will go to extreme lengths to get people out of their photos. And I respect that. You know, you don't want every single one of your shots of gorillas or tigers or chimpanzees to have some human in it. But don't shy away from that opportunity. Um, humans are a great sense of scale. They provide a great sense of scale for photos. Everybody knows <laughs> how big and approximate human is. So if you see a person next to that critter, that wildlife, maybe that, that landscape even, it provides a lot of context and a lot of scale to your photography. In addition, just like I was talking about with the vehicles, when you can put a person, maybe another photographer who's aiming and photographing a giant silverback gorilla, uh, you are just behind that person and you're getting it almost showing like where you were photographing your photos that 
the rest of your album contains of, you know, full on, you know, face shots of the gorilla and the young babies playing, et cetera, et cetera. If you can provide context to that by showing another photographer next to you doing the same thing, it really, really ties the story together extremely nicely. And that's storytelling. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. We went over wildlife photography 101, five tips that will elevate your game instantly. Focus, composition, light, white balance, and storytelling. I look forward to expanding further on each one of these in later episodes. But for now, stay tuned, and there's more to come. Thank you.